could do that song like every week, I think. I'd be cool with it. It's a good one. How you guys doing today? You ready to, ready to laugh at my jokes? Boost my self-esteem? Somebody's pretending to be excited. Oh, jeez. That? <laughs> That's... Did the Holy Spirit do that? Because I did not feel that. Well, hey, last week was Easter, um, our first Easter in our new home. And uh, it was, check this out, it was really good. So I didn't, I didn't know this uh, until we did some math. We actually had uh, over 600 people here last week. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. And that's, that's, uh, that's the most ever we've ever had on a Sunday. And I mean like ever, ever, because some t- pastors doing this thing where you're like, they only give you like post COVID numbers. Like they say ever, they only mean like for the last two years. No, I mean like ever, ever. Um, and yes, uh, there, is a, there is a such thing as pastor math. We, if you were pregnant, we counted you twice. So <laughs> it's just the way we do it. Uh, and I also just wanted to say, man, if you, if you serve somewhere, uh, that's, we call it serving, you know, volunteer. Uh, it's a very Christian thing to say serve because you're serving God, you're not just volunteering. So uh, if you volunteered, uh, if you're a regular volunteer, specifically last week, it's just a stressful thing when you know you're gonna have way more people than normal and uh, you like wanna be in service, but all the kids, people were like, no, you have to go to the basement, like go watch kids. Uh, so I just wanna say, man, thank you so much if you serve somewhere in this church to make that a thing. Because what we're doing, um, I hope you see that you're a part of something like bigger than you and, and, and you get to be a part of what God is doing here. And uh, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. All right, so we're starting a new series today called Happy According to Jesus. Happy According to Jesus. Have you noticed like in our society, in our culture, that a lot of times when, when people talk about happiness, they talk about it like it's a secret. Have you noticed, isn't that weird? Like it's almost always framed as like the secret to happiness. Like we got to whisper about it because it's something that not everybody knows. And um, I know that's a marketing ploy, right? Like, can we just be, we all know that this is a marketing, that the, that the person who writes, ooh, secret to happiness, they just want you to go read their blog, right? And, and it's gonna be about some, some organic kale that they're selling, right, for $40 an ounce. And they lost 50 pounds and it saved their marriage, right? Like, that's the secret to happiness, expensive organic kale. Um, so I know that's a load of crap, so do you. Uh, but it is, it's, I don't know, I think it's interesting that it's so consistently used that it's always framed as if it is a secret, right? Um, like everyone else is whispering about how happy they are and you're the one left out, right? And then um, add to that a couple of things. So one, statistically speaking, uh, the, the studies they've done recently is that only about 35-ish percent of Americans are actually happy. Uh, and that's, that's recent, so it maybe was a little bit better a couple years ago, rightfully so, right? So, but it's been a, it's been a rough couple of years. Uh, but that, that means that like 60 to 70% of our country's not happy. Like the, they would tell you they're not happy. That's a lot of people. But, but none of us, if, if I would have let you guess, you might not have guessed that because, and the reason is because of social media, right? Because none of us put that out there. You know, you, you look at social media, you think everybody's happy except you, right? Now everybody's going on vacations, having all these kid-free date nights. Where are y'all getting your babysitters, by the way, right? 
and they're buying new cars, all these, all these awesome, amazing things. And you're sitting there going, man, there, it must be a secret and I don't know it, right? So it kind of heightens this feeling like you're, you're, you're like back in, in middle school taking a math test and everybody's turned it in except you. And you look like the idiot, right? Because everybody else knows and you don't. Add to that, this is all my intro. It's good. I'm going to read a portion of the Declaration of Independence now to give depth to my sermon. Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. Life, liberty, and happiness in the Declaration of Independence are all capitalized. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. So this line, this idea of the pursuit of happiness is like woven into the fabric of our country. Speaking about happiness as if it's an end, as if happiness is like the goal, the bullseye that we should be aiming for. By the way, side note, interesting how miserably we're failing at it if only 35% of us are actually getting it, right? Um, that's the goal, pursuing happiness. Uh, but I, so listen, I, I need to, I got to start with this. This is like the, this isn't just the intro to my sermon. This is like the intro to the whole series. So it's always a little bit harder. I'm introducing like two things. Um, we're going to look at the way Jesus sees happiness for the next couple of weeks. Uh, and it's going to be, it's, Jesus is always in, in such a different world than, than, than anyone else when he teaches. It's not going to be some neat little eight step thing to be happy. Right? It's not going to be some roadmap to happiness. It's not going to be some program that if you do it, you will be happy. That's not the way Jesus ever taught really anything. Um, but he, he just sees the world so different. Uh, and I want to give you a little bit, just like one line that I'll call like Jesus' philosophy when it comes to happiness. And you got to get this. This is like the premise to the whole thing. So if you miss this and you start listening to each individual thing, you're going to misunderstand them. So you have to have this first. And... Uh, here it is, Jesus' overall philosophy is that happiness is a byproduct, not an end in and of itself. Happiness is a byproduct, not an end in and of itself. So, so I know this is kind of considered blasphemy, blasphemy in some circles, but the Declaration of Independence is like wrong. <laughs> it's not in the Bible, it's okay. The Bible is a different thing. Anyways, so maybe some people need to hear that. Um, the pursuit of happiness is actually a wrong pursuit. That's not the thing we should be pursuing. Like if you show the Declaration of Independence to Jesus and be like, what'd you think? He'd be like, you're gonna pursue happiness? Like that's gonna be your, your goal? I think he would critique that and say, that's not the thing that you should make an end. It is a byproduct of the thing. You don't pursue a byproduct. You pursue other things and they produce the byproduct. You actually can't get a byproduct by pursuing it. You can't get that. You have to pursue something else and then the thing is produced. So you got to remember this, the whole series. I'm going to remind you that happiness is a byproduct, not an end in and of itself. And because what Jesus is going to say, it's going to sound wrong. It's going to sound upside down. It's going to sound paradoxical. Like some of the stuff Jesus says is going to leave you scratching your head like, wait, what? And one of the keys you're going to have to remember is that he's not looking at happiness as an end in and of itself. He's looking at it as produced by pursuing other things. That's worth the price of admission all by itself. You're not giving me enough credit. That was good. Now, okay. 
Thank you for the golf clap. Get out of my face. I reject it. So Jesus' main teaching on happiness actually comes from his most famous sermon. This is uh, widely considered like the greatest sermon of all time. It's in Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, Jesus teaches and uh, he really seemed to gear up for this sermon. It's, it's a huge, huge portion of uh, just the teaching that we have from Jesus. And we're going to look at all of one sentence today. Just one sentence from this monster sermon. Uh, hey, we looked at one word last week. So we're making progress, right? We got, we got actually a whole sentence today. So it's found in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 3. Here's what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Little side note real quick. I might misspeak today, kind of. Uh, I grew up in church and I grew up uh, with the King James Bible, the King James Bible, okay? 1611 King James Bible, if you know, you know. Um, So they talked a little different in 1611. I don't know if you know that. Um, so when I was like, we had to like memorize, I went to a Christian school, forgive me. So I'm, I'm, all, I'm all kinds of church kid. And we like memorized like a lot of chapter five of Matthew because it's kind of an important, pretty, pretty famous text. We would always say blessed. We'd say blessed. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed, which is weird because like it's not spelled any different than the word blessed. I always think there should be like a dash there, like blessed, like your hashtag blessed. Like if you wanted to be 1600s old school, I guess. So the reason I'm telling you that is because if I misspeak today, I might say blessed. It's just kind of coming out of me. It's a, that King James Bible is still, still got some residue inside my soul. I guess it's not a terrible thing, but blessed's weird. It's just a weird way to say it. So this sentence, throw that verse back up there. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is like a jam-packed sentence. That is heavy stuff. And this is one of those things, especially if you're like newer to the faith and like, like if you came to me and said, hey, Adam, where should I start reading the Bible? If like you're brand new to the Bible, I would say start in Matthew. I really like starting with Jesus. So you start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're gonna get a whole lot of Jesus. People start in Genesis, you're gonna, you're gonna burn out by Leviticus. It's gonna be rough. So I always start you in Matthew. Uh, so you'd be reading and you'd get to chapter five and you'd read this sentence. And for somebody who's kind of newer, you're gonna look at that and go, what? Like, actually, like the poor in, like blessed are the poor in spirit. It, th- that sounds like the opposite of true, right? What, what about the rich in spirit? What are, where are those people at? Like, how is it that the poor in spirit are the ones who are blessed? And then like, what in the world does he mean when it says for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? Like, so there, these poor people are like getting something here. Like this sentence is wild. And on the surface, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but I want to point out something Uh, significant here. Uh, This is the start. This is the opening line of his sermon. This is the first thing that he says. Uh, This is kind of famous. I don't know if if you're familiar with this part of the Bible. I don't usually tell um, all the Christian buzzwords. Do you know that like if you, if you say certain things that people think they already know that the moment you say the thing, they'll, they'll turn off. So I don't like say all the Christian words on purpose. One time I tried to preach an entire sermon on patience without saying the word patience just to get people not to like put the guard up. Like, so I'm not even going to tell you the famous parts of this. So Jesus is up on a mount and he's teaching this sermon. Um, and he opens up with this line, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the first thing that comes out of his mouth. Now, 
this is a, there's a list here. He's going to go down the line. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Uh, but he starts with this one. Of all the things he could start with, and some of these make way more sense than this one. This is the, the most paradoxical of all of them. But he starts here. And I think it's super significant that this is the first thing that he says. Uh, so remember in like high school or college when you, you got to sign up for courses? Do you remember that? You got to sign up for courses? Uh, so I remember back uh, when I first started at Malone, uh, they actually gave us like a paper catalog. Remember, it wasn't online. Like I did, did, that's, <laughs> that's how long ago it was. Uh, they gave you a big old thick like catalog. You had to leaf through this thing, looking at all the classes. They murdered an entire tree just for one of them. And you're flipping through this thing. And there was so many classes. And Malone's not even that big, but there was just so many classes. And you're a little, it's a little bit overwhelming. But um, it's actually a little misleading because you can't sign up for all the classes. Like there's a ton of classes listed, but you can't sign up for all of them because some classes, you know, you get all excited. Ooh, that's really cool. But then you go down to like they have a little description. And then at the bottom, there's this little thing that says uh, prereq. And then there's other classes that you have to take before you can take that class, right? So you get all excited about the class, but actually you have to take like three classes before you even get to that one because of this thing called prerequisites. So if you want to take organic chemistry, you got to take gen chem first. And I don't know why on God's earth you'd want to take either one of those, but um, gen chem, general chemistry is my worst grade in my academic career. I got a D and it was the professor's fault. <laughs> I'm not even going to go into more of it, but it's true. I got a better grade as I went. Anyways, you want to take calculus, you got to take pre-calc first, or you got you to take a test that puts you into it. So there's a prerequisite, right? You're the prerequisite for a class or a prerequisite of a test. If you want to take Shakespeare, you got you to take English one first. You're still not going to understand him, but you got to take that. It's a prerequisite. You got to do this thing before you can have this thing. And you run into these things all the time in your life, right? Prerequisites. If you want that job, you do have to have this degree. If you want the management position, management position, you got to, you know, start in the entry level position. You want the loan, you got to have a good credit score. You want to make a change in your life, you got to have some self-awareness that you need it, right? All these things. You understand a prerequisite. This thing has to come before this thing. And if it, it, you can't take them out of order. So keep that idea of a prerequisite in your mind. We talk about Jesus a lot here at Mosaic, um, specifically what he did on the cross kind of won't shut up about it, actually. It might be annoying, but I don't care. Um, we're going to keep talking about him. And, and I, I will talk about Jesus dying on the cross and raising him from the dead as the most greatest, most important act in history. It's the most important thing to ever happen. And I don't even just mean like important out there. I mean important in here. Like it's not just that Jesus died. It's that Jesus died for me. Jesus died for you. This is the best news ever. That's why it's called the gospel, by the way. The word gospel actually means good news. It's good news that Jesus died for me. It's good news that Jesus died for you. But listen to me. There's like a prerequisite here to get that, to actually let that truth impact you. In order to believe that Jesus dying on the cross is good news, you have to believe that you needed it. You have to believe that you needed it. The prerequisite to believing the good news is actually believing the bad news. And if you don't believe the bad news first, then the good news is just kind of news. It's not really that impactful at all. So I'm going to say the thing, the thing that you've maybe heard a lot of preachers say, but I hope to explain it in a slightly different way. There's no way around it though. You have to believe 
that you're a sinner in order to believe that Jesus died for your sins. Does that make sense? I mean, the words are in both sentences, right? You can't believe that Jesus died for your sins if you don't believe first that you done messed up. Hey, hey, Ron. (laughs) Poor in spirit. So when Jesus says poor in spirit, he's actually laying out like a prerequisite to become a Christian, right? Poor in spirit is basically, listen, basically a proper understanding of your spiritual condition. Poor in spirit is a proper understanding of your spiritual condition. Newsflash, it's not good. Okay, that, that's, that's what this means. You understand where you're at spiritually. Uh, just to give you another idea, uh, other translations, uh, when they translate poor in spirit, let me give you a rundown because these are really good and kind of rounds out the meaning. Um, those who know their spiritual poverty, those who recognize they are spiritually helpless, those who know they are spiritually poor, those who realize their need for him, those who know they have a great spiritual need. Those are the ways other translations say poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means that when you come before God, you know that you are spiritually broke. You are spiritually broke. This is (laughs) like my greatest challenge as a preacher. It's my greatest challenge as a preacher. I want to repeatedly tell you how awesome it is that Jesus died for you. I do. I just wanna bask in that. But in order for me to properly communicate to you how awesome it is that that God came down, lived a perfect life and died for you, you have to understand that you needed him to do that. And that's actually my greatest challenge because if I live over here and only talk about the fact that Jesus died for you and I never tell you really (laughs) why, then that thing doesn't impact you like it's supposed to. You have to understand, man, I put some bombs in here. (laughs) We had actually a surprising number of first-time guests, first service. I don't, I'm not going to call you out, so don't worry. We don't do that here. You know, there's some churches that like, if you're new, they like make you stand up and everybody like looks at you and claps. Like, you can thank me that I'm an introvert and that sounds like hell. (laughs) We would never do that. Um... But I'm always curious how somebody will think the first time walking in when I say the sentence, because this is what I wrote. You have to understand that from God's perspective, you're not a good person. Welcome to Mosaic. (laughs) What a crappy thing to try and convince someone of, right? You're not good. Like that's, but this is an important theological truth that I have to now communicate. You sh- I'm trying to get you to pity me so you'll listen a little bit better, okay? You can't be mad at somebody you're pitying, okay? That's my challenge today is I have to convince you. What it means to be poor in spirit is to understand that you aren't good. That's what it means. So yeah, welcome to Mosaic, you suck. That's essentially <laughs> what we're doing here. Yes, I got to clap for that one, that's good. The exits are there and there now. <laughs> we should put that, we'll, we'll repaint that. A little church for people who don't think church for them, welcome to Mosaic, you suck. That's what we'll do out there now. Um, gosh, just saying the sentence, isn't that crazy? Just saying the sentence, you're not a good person. Like this, you gotta, you gotta understand something. So last week leading up to Easter, you know, Easter's a big deal. 
I, I maybe make it a bigger deal than it really is, but I, I do. I lean into Easter, man. I like shut myself down. I try not to deal with any problems. I told the staff, like, we're not going to talk to each other this week just so we wouldn't fight. <laughs> like, we're, everybody go to the corner. We're going to have a smooth week. It's just like my kids, same thing. Like, everybody stay away from each other. We're going to have a smooth week. And I shut it down, but I was tortured leading up to Easter. I was tortured because... Like the world we live in is so different than the one I started being a pastor in. Like this is the thought and this is a crazy thought, but this is actually what I, I came to a conclusion last week because I was gearing up for Easter and Easter's all about Jesus died and rose again. So here's what I'm thinking leading up to Easter. I'm actually thinking that, hey, we Christians are celebrating a guy who died and came back to life. For people who don't believe that, that's a wild thing to, to actually believe, right? But here's the thing. I actually thought that's easier, easier, than convincing people that they needed him to do that. Like, how crazy is that? That I was more concerned about the person who's gonna sit there and go, so what? Who even cares? Like, the, it was easier to convince them that a dude's heart had stopped for three days and then it started back up than it was to convince them of the sentence, you're not a good person. <laughs> like, that. That's what, like, that's the world we live in. This is my job now. It's easier to say a guy came back to life than it is to convince people that they are a sinner. Because, because it is such an easy thing to like defend yourself against, right? You, you get that mental sword out and you're like, really preacher? <laughs> and you start parrying everything I could say. And it's easy, right? So I say, you're not a good person. You'd be like, me? Who are you talking to, dude? You, first of all, you don't even know me, preacher boy. Secondly, I watched the news this morning. I saw some bad people on the news, right? I'm not like that guy who murdered those people. I'm not like that guy who embezzled millions of dollars from people and ruined their lives. I'm not like those, those gang members or those drug dealers. I'm not those people. I'm not. <laughs> Who are you talking about? And some of you, that's low hanging fruit, right? Those are bad people. Some of you, you're even better than that, right? You're like, I'm not like the person who leaves their grocery cart in the middle of the parking lot, right? Better than them. Or I'm better than, you know, the person who does the traffic, they don't let people in. I, I let people in. I'm, I'm, I'm better than them, right? You, you have even a higher standard. So you can defend yourself against this. But I got to read you a story. Jesus told it. Be mad at him. Matthew chapter 18. This is one of, so Jesus taught in this thing, he called them parables. These, these uh, super like sticky stories where, um, you're kinda, you kind of lean in and then Jesus just pops you in the mouth. Like every single time though it happens because you're like, oh my gosh, you're like, this is so good. And then wham, and you realize he's actually talking about you. So um, I just preached my watch right off my wrist there when I punched you. Luke chapter 18, verse 10, here's what Jesus said. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a despised tax collector. Real quick, just so you know, Pharisees are good people tax collectors are bad people. Uh, verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. Thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, and adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. 12, he gives a little bit of a resume. I fast twice a week and I give you a 10th of my income. <laughs> I tithe regularly and I fast regularly. He's flexing a little bit. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, oh God, be merciful to me, 
for I am a sinner. Now here comes the punchline because I fear you got this contrast. Here's what Jesus says, verse 14. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. That is a crazy thing for Jesus to say because he just told you the good guy left not justified and the bad guy left justified. He just said that the bad guy was closer to God than the good guy in the story. But the difference was not their spiritual resume. The difference was the disposition of their heart before God, right? This one, the tax collector was poor in spirit. The Pharisee thought he was rich. That's nuts. You wanna be close to God, you gotta be poor in spirit. You wanna be justified before God, a prerequisite is being poor in spirit. It's actually not your spiritual resume. That's not it. And the, the reason I, the, this story is so perfect for that, for that self-defense that you have, when you say, when I say you're a bad person, you go, oh, really? Like, I think Jesus dealt with this a little bit too, because the Pharisee would have been like, no, I'm not. <laughs> that guy, that guy's the bad one. I'm the good, look, look at this red, look at what I do. So he was saying, he was saying, I'm actually a good person. And Jesus is saying, that's, that's gonna get you far from God. That's actually gonna push you away from God. When you think you're good, that pushes you away from God. It's admitting that you're not that draws you close. Like that, that's a total like upside down way of viewing the world that the Pharisees totally didn't get. And what it also means, and this is the crazy part, is that like, when you're talking about being a good person, like, by the way, I'm not an idiot. I know what you mean. If you would say the sentence, I'm a good person, I know what you mean. You're comparing yourself to other people and that's, what, like, that's a way to do it, right? I, I enjoy a good comparison that makes me feel good about myself, right? I watch terrible preachers sometimes for the confidence booster. I do, I do. But what this is saying is that if you really want to get an accurate view of your spiritual condition, you shouldn't compare yourself to people. You should compare yourself to God. It's not going to be a pleasant comparison, just so you know, right? But that's really the truth. A, a, a poor in spirit person does not look around and go, how I'm doing? Or yeah, oh, Sally over here, she sucks, so I'm better than her. You know, like they're not doing that. A poor in spirit person looks up and goes, ooh, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's, that's a poor in spirit person. When they look up, because you're always looking up when you're comparing yourself to God. The tax collector who was not the better guy ended up leaving closer to God than the guy who was good. I have come to the conclusion, preaching now for like 11 years, that the people who think they're kind of good are the hardest ones to reach. They're the hardest ones to reach because they don't think they need him. I, I could argue all day long about the hyster, historicity is there historicity, historicity, historicity sounds good. We'll just go with that. Of Jesus' resurrection. I could give you tons of reasons why I think that happened, like for real, for real, not, not like some metaphor, but like actually happened. I could do that. Why even go there if, if you're sitting here going, who cares? I'm good. God, why wouldn't God accept me? Like, if you don't get 
that you need it, then I don't even want to spend any time convincing you that it happened. Poor in spirit is a prerequisite to becoming a Christian. The story Jesus told tells us that no matter how little sin you have in your life, it's still too much to come to God. God is perfect. You can't go to God with any sin at all. You need him. You need his sacrifice. You cannot get to God on your own. You will never climb that high, the moral ladder. You will never get there. Realizing that is the beginning of being poor in spirit. When you pray prayers to God, God, I can't do it. That's poor in spirit. God, I I need you. That's poor in spirit. God, I'm I'm not good enough. That's poor in spirit. That's actually the right way. That is the, the sinner. That is the be merciful to me, God, a sinner prayer. That's poor in spirit. A prerequisite to trusting in Jesus is believing that you need him. A prerequisite to having a relationship with God is admitting you can't get to him on your own. That's the prerequisite. That's so important. I actually, uh, I had some really cool, so I was so like nervous for Easter. Like I said, I just worked myself up into a frenzy. It's really stupid. Do it every year. Just keep doing, just gonna keep banging my head against the wall. I had a conversation with somebody who had become a Christian as an adult. And I really wanted to hear like, how did that work? So they were telling me about like their first church experience. It was wild. Um, Cause churches just don't realize how weird they are. Um, but he was talking about this idea that that like, yes, like he'd heard a lot. No, you know, Christianity is still pretty famous, right? Hear a lot. Jesus died for you, right? You hear that a lot. Like that's, that's a common thing that somebody would know. Like if, if you were picking facts out about Jesus, you might say, okay, yeah, he died for people's sins, you know? But he said like that conversion, and that is a conversion, right? We believe that's a really important. We get excited about that, man. We just, we just baptized somebody who told you that she like had that moment here where I wasn't this and then I was this. Like, I love that, man, I... That when somebody goes from death to life, when someone says, I I need Jesus, when someone comes to the conclusion that he is their savior, that I could look at that transition all day long. To me, it's one of the most beautiful things in the world. It really is. But talking to this guy, I realized, I almost want to say, there are a couple of conversions that need to happen. So my boy, C.S. Lewis, I'm going to call him my boy now. He's just, we're friends. He's been dead a while, but um, he actually had two conversions in his life. He had a conversion where he became a, uh, what he would call a deist. He believed that there was a God. And then later in his life, he became a Christian. He believed that Jesus was the God, right? Uh, so it was actually, he talked about two conversions. But in talking to this guy this week, I was like, man, I wonder if there aren't like three. If there's a conversion to, yes, you need to believe that there is a God. And maybe you don't know much about him, but you just believe that there's no way all this could have happened on its own. There has to be some kind of powerful something or other out there. But then I wonder if the path to Christianity, if there's not in between, you know, C.S. Lewis's two conversions, if there's not one in here where you have to convert to like admitting you're a sinner. Like if that itself almost isn't a conversion now, because the way our culture talks, right? Like our culture talks about you as if really the highest good for you is to do what you want, right? So how can you be wrong, (laughs) right? The only thing that's a sin is you not doing what you want. That's a wild culture to live in, by the way. Absolutely insane, right? I always use Frozen as my favorite example of this because so, (laughs) yes, I have kids, shut up. Um, Where the whole less, the whole like, message behind Frozen is she's supposed to what? Let it go, right? My gosh, it bores into your brain. Let it go. Here's the ironic part about that movie though. When she let it go, what happened? She destroyed the world, 
She destroyed her world. It's funny that even in trying to teach this lesson, they kind of messed it up because what she really needed was not to embrace whatever she wanted. She, she actually had to admit there was something wrong. And, and I think this is, a, this is a conversion now that you actually need to come to the place where you say, I'm not good enough. I can't come to God on my own. I am a sinner. And then you can have the conversion to say, and I believe Jesus died for me. And sometimes those two things can happen real close together. But I think you got to have that one. It's a prerequisite in order to have this one. Seriously though, isn't this funny? So this is God. I'm, I blamed my, my, my professor for a bad grade and now I'm going to blame God for this. That uh, we have Easter. It's this awesome thing. Oh, 600 people. Cool. All right, God, what should I preach on next? Tell them they're sinners. <laughs> Can we like do something nicer? <laughs> no, do it. So I said, yes. Um, and by the way, Christian, I just want to say, you never graduate from this. You never graduate from poor in spirit. Listen, you never graduate from poor in spirit. This is not a thing that like, oh, now I'm rich. No, you're always going to have the disposition of the, the tax collector in the story. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That is the right standing you should have. Poor in spirit. I've got nothing. God's got everything. I'm not, I'm not standing in God's presence because of anything I've done. I'm standing in God's presence based on what Jesus did. That is poor in spirit. Thank you. Don't graduate from that. Graduate from that, it's going to jack you up. Um, preaching way slower than I did first service. I had extra time. I actually looked up the clock and said, oh my gosh, I can keep going. Wait, you changed it. He did. He cut my time. I'm just blaming everybody today. It's going to be a great day. All right. Why are they blessed though? Why is a foreign spirit person blessed? Why, why are they happy? Happy are the porn spirit. Like even explaining all of this is still kind of weird. Happy are the people who know they're spiritually broke. Happy are the people who are spiritually just desperate. I can think of two reasons. Uh, one, a, a poor in spirit person, uh, they don't have to pretend anymore. They don't have to pretend anymore. They don't have to pretend to be a good person anymore because they're just admitting that they're not one. They don't have to put on a show. They don't have to put some facade up to get everybody to think they're something because don't, you don't have to anymore. It's very freeing. I know that my right standing with God is not based off of me. It's based off of what Jesus did. I don't have to put on some show for you now. And even better than that, I don't have to put on a show for God anymore because how, how many of us try to live our lives lying to God? You know, you're trying to give God some kind of resume like, hey God, I had a good week. <laughs> Please be nice to me. And God's like, no, you suck. But I love you. And I sent my son to die for you. And, and that's the basis of our relationship. I don't have to pretend with God anymore. When I, when I stand over here somewhere every single Sunday, I have this horrible like battle to believe this. Every week, I'm like, all right, Lord, I really screwed up this week a lot. And he's like, do you think? <laughs> do you think I'm going to show up more if you don't? What does that have to do with anything? Like... This is, this is based on him, not me. And another reason that the poor in spirit are happy is because they realize they don't have to work for a right relationship with God. Oh my God, do you know how freeing that is? That if you're walking under the weight of 
every time I mess up, I feel like God's mad at me and, and I have to work my way back into some right standing with him. That is a huge burden. But somebody who says, I'm just, I'm broke. I got nothing. And I only have a relationship with God because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. I'm free. I can stand straight up and be like, I don't have to work for this anymore. I don't have to run on this hamster wheel of trying to be a good person so God will like me. I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to ride the wave of every good day or bad day. I don't have to. God loves me because of what Jesus did for me. I'm, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. Happy are the point spirit. I don't gotta carry that crap anymore. I gotta skip stuff, it's dumb. It's sweat pouring in my eye. I can't complain, I complain about snow, I can't complain about sweating. It's against the rules. I wanna give you three uh, practical, let's call them tests, to see if you're poor in spirit. See how you're doing there. One, poor in spirit have given up on the idea that God owes them. If you know you have nothing spiritual to offer, you're not gonna really act entitled with God. It doesn't make any sense. You can't put, you can't put God in your debt. You can't put God in your debt. This is such an important concept. I, I, I talk to Christians a lot and I get the impression, nobody would say that, but I do get the impression that people think that if they live their life a certain way, like God kind of owes them, right? Like God's up in heaven going, oh, church three weeks in a row. <laughs> oh, how about all green lights tomorrow morning? Like that's not the way God works. You cannot put God, God owns everything. Anything good is a gift from him. You can't give him anything that he wasn't already owed. <laughs> Like, so it doesn't even make sense. It's like a kid when the kid, you know, when your kids like buy you a present, but they use your money. <laughs> you didn't give me anything. You didn't give me anything. You, you, you actually took my money and used it on something that I probably don't want, but okay, here we are. That's, that's essentially what we do when we think we're putting God in, in, in our debt. It, it, we, a, a poor in spirit comes to God, hands open with nothing in them. I don't have a receipt to give God. I don't have a bill to give God. I am only standing here because of what Jesus did for me. I've got nothing. And every good gift that comes from you is just that, it is a gift. The second thing that a poor in spirit person does, and I, I had to put this in here to kind of counteract that first one, poor in spirit person is not afraid to ask. I'm afraid that if you don't think that God owes you, you might just clam up and not ask him anything. No, 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 a poor in spirit person is desperate for God, desperate for God. You're gonna ask a lot actually as a poor in spirit person. You know that you need him. You need him to work in your life. There's a desperation actually to a poor in spirit person's prayers. You need him. And then finally, a poor in spirit person just aren't judgy. I'll say judgy. I could have said judgmental, but I wanted to be wrong and put judgy. Just feels more like what Christians do. But listen, if you rightly understand your spiritual state, if you know that the only reason you stand before God is because of what Jesus did for you, you being judgmental towards other people makes no sense at all. No sense. If you're saying I'm spiritually broke, how can you look down on somebody else who is also spiritually broke? You're in the same spiritual condition. The way preachers always used to say it, the, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We're all there because of God's grace and nothing more. So listen, this is a, 
a really big deal for me because I think as Christians grow, the, the temptation to become judgmental becomes greater, right? As you become better, you become tempted to look down on people who aren't. But again, I'll just put the story that Jesus told back in your ears. I hope it rings in your ears. Though I love the way Jesus tells these stories. He said, here's the Pharisee, here's what he did. Here's the tax collector, here's what he did. And you're in the story wanting to say, I wanna be like the Pharisee because he was a good guy. But Jesus is like, no, be like, the, be like the jacked up sinner in the story. What if we had a church full of tax collectors who like our disposition towards God was be merciful to me as a sinner. How can you be judgmental of anybody who would walk in the door with anything, anything? Man, I just, we just had a, a talk with the staff and brought somebody in and we were talking about how churches tend to have these certain dispositions towards certain types of sins, like, like they got to clean up before they come to Jesus. <laughs> Why? He died for that. He died for all of it, all of it. Why would you ever look at somebody sideways walking in here? They're walking in here. This is great. So I'll tell you this, this might be a little messed up, but I just need you to know, if a church, church turns judgmental, I will burn it down, okay? Let me look into the camera. It's metaphorically, for insurance purposes. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Things burns down. Insurance guys are like, well, you did say. But for real, that's magnetic, by the way. Do you know that? That's magnetic. But church can get this. If we can get the idea that, hey, I actually have nothing to offer. You got to come check this out because I'm not good. You're not good. Actually, that's the whole point of Christianity is that we're a bunch of sinners who needed saved. And it, there is no prerequisite to, to, to what you have to do except for sin. Like, that's actually crazy. Like, the, the whole prerequisite to becoming a Christian, what is it? Sin. You're in. You, you, you pass that test. Now you just got to trust in Jesus. Like, that's crazy. It's flat. There is no ladder to climb. He came down. That's the point of this thing. So if we ever act different, losing me. Poor in spirit. Worship team, why don't you guys come up here? I want to read two verses from a hymn. Now a hymn is this thing. <laughs> We're not singing it either because they don't know any. I'm sorry. Uh, it's this old school uh, songs that churches used to sing. There's really good ones. And I want to read this because it's, it's two verses from this hymn called Rock of Ages. It's actually a pretty famous one, but I love the way, man, there's something about uh, the way the words are organized and just the cadence to it, that it just expresses essentially what it means to be poor in spirit so perfectly. So listen to this. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by grace. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I fly, uh, foul to the fountain I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. I need you. It's a, it's a desperation. It's a knowing. You need Jesus. You got to have that before you believe this. Pray with me. Jesus. <laughs> Lord, I pray for the person 
who maybe isn't a Christian yet, Lord. Maybe they haven't even come to this conclusion that this is where they're at. Spiritually, Lord, I just pray for, for them right now. What a terrifying thing to stand up in front of hundreds of people and tell them they're not good. Pray that my words are guided by your spirit. And that if somebody needs to come to that, come to that place, to have that conversion that they would happen today, Lord, that they would see themselves in light of you. Lord, I pray for the Christians here too, Lord, that we would never, never go there, never try to graduate from that, Lord, that we would always be the tax collector in the story, that we would always be beating our chest and that we would always be saying, be merciful to me, a sinner, that we would always do that, Lord, that never would we stand up and, and, and act like that Pharisee, Lord. I pray for this church, Lord, that we would be uh, magnetic in our being poor in spirit. Like beggars finding other beggars where to find bread, Lord, I pray that that's what we would be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.